Welcome to BIV Today. We're the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. And I'm Tyler Orton. On today's show, we're going to talk about whether employees and employers should be responsible for figuring out work-life balance here in the workplace. We're also going to talk about how we can win at meetings. A wide range of innovative, disruptive technologies are making payments and transactions a lot easier for businesses now. And on September 13th, BIV's FinTech panel is going to look at how small and medium-sized businesses can make informed decisions in this new landscape. Hope you can join us. Tickets and information are available at BIV.com slash events. So is it all work, no play for Canadian professionals? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes. Yeah, I I can't argue with that. But uh, we've got new research out from Robert Half Canada that shows that most workers have achieved good or excellent work-life balance. But these survey results, they also show that workers and employers, they actually disagree about who is responsible for providing this balance. And Mike Sheckman, he joins us now. He is the Vancouver-based regional manager with Robert Half Canada. Mike, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me, Tyler. So when it comes to work-life balance, I I mean, whose responsibility is it really? Because I I anticipate both the employer and the employee kind of think that maybe, yeah, it's up to the other one to figure it out on their own. Yeah, I was going to say that. It's someone else's problem, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's uh, it's true. It just seems like there's a a little bit of lack of accountability in terms of where the responsibility is is laying, but... uh, what, what, what the research has found is that um, the workers or employees and professionals believe that that responsibility uh, should somehow lie on the, the employer's side in terms of when um, the work life or when uh, maybe vacation should be taking place uh, and, and vice versa. The good news is that uh, the gap uh, is um, has come, come together. It shows that um, when you're looking overall, 50% of it is kind of putting the responsibility on the other, on the other side, but uh, it is getting a little bit better for sure. What are people really seeking here when they talk about balance, Mike? Is it, is it that they want more holidays, more perks, more flex time? What, what, is, what is it that a typical employee is suggesting is really the, the ingredient here to, to strive for balance? That's that's a great question, and that's what it is. I think defining what work-life balance means is the, is the first uh, understanding that you need to uh, really un- uncover. Uh, you have to understand what actually is the motivator. For for many people, it used to mean being able to work um, from, from 8 to 5, for example, and know that you're leaving right at 5 o'clock, and that's work-life balance. But now it could mean anything from enjoying a flexible uh, schedule, the opportunity to work remotely, or having the ability to kind of step out to address personal demands. Um, which, uh, again, you know, you know, whether it's running errands, paying the bills, uh, everything that comes on a day-to-day basis, um, that for some people means work-life balance as well. Well, how much is technology playing a factor here? Because, you know, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you weren't necessarily expected to be answering emails, you know, at uh, you know, 10 o'clock at night. But I mean, it's easy to do. And I think there's a lot of that go, go, go mentality. Is technology actually kind of changing the way that we think of work-life balance and how we use, I guess, those eight to nine hours of the day during like kind of daylight hours? Yeah, no, that's a great, uh, that's a great point. So it, what organizations are, are doing is maybe giving that flexibility and it's a good way to actually retain and attract talent by saying, hey, you know what, 
maybe it's not about working eight to five. Maybe it's about working eight to two and then picking things up in, in the evening. Uh, so I, I think it's important going back to setting those um, boundaries and, and expectations. And, and sometimes it's, it's, it's tempting. It's tempting to be able to check emails, uh, but don't just do it for the sake of staying connected. Uh, you want to be equally productive in, in what you do. Uh, so sometimes they can play uh, a death, uh, detriment in terms of, in terms of uh, just being able to uh, not uh, utilize technology for the best ability just because you have to be connected. I went to a concert last night where they didn't permit smartphones. And so I had to leave my smartphone in my car um, and I was gone from it for a whole six hours. How, how did you survive, Kirk? I don't. I'm still. I'm still. I'm still reeling. Really, uh, but but sure enough, when I got back to my car, and uh, of course I grabbed my phone right away and yeah. you know reconnected with it. Um, there were work emails there. Mm. That, that's what I had to basically deal with. And I I cannot remember a time now uh, in the last twenty years when I didn't have work email generally at night. And and, and so for me. That's kind of recreated balance in, in my life. But so it also means that other people are sending you emails. They're working in the evening yeah, as well. So it's yeah. kind of this, this back and forth between everyone. So, so the trade that I seek is that I, I try to borrow other bits of time at other times of the week in order to accommodate the fact that I am, generally speaking, Mike, always on. It, is there an always on problem that we have here? I think it's a societal um, concern, but uh, I think that as long as you feel that um, you are accomplishing your goals, both professionally and, and personally, I think work-life balance is somewhat of, um, of a questionable statement. I think that uh, for individuals that really want to define this black and white, they think, hey, I'm only going to be working and I'm only going to be on when I'm at work then that's the definition for some individuals. But for maybe you and I, we have a, a mentality where we feel that, hey, I can still get everything that I want to do uh, with my family, with my friends, uh, and I can, you know, break away for a couple of minutes uh, and answer a couple of emails. And, and at work, I can still accomplish everything I need to do uh, within the day and still take care of uh, specific things that are outside of work. So I, I think just defining that is important. Until your friends and family stage an intervention. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that, yeah. that, that Then your work-life balance is only in your head. It's well, not, not in theirs. I, I was that, interviewing... That, that, uh, that is correct. Yeah, I, I, I recall interviewing somebody whose you know, company is based in France, and they actually passed legislation there where you're not allowed to answer you know, work emails you know, past working time hours. So this person, I, I won't name names, said, uh, if you need to get a hold of me, text me instead. Like, it, it's interesting <laughs> that they were trying to work around, you know, the, these whole rules that went into place. Encrypted so. messages only on yeah, WhatsApp. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Use WhatsApp. But w with regards to Canada, because, Mike, you just said it's a societal thing. So uh, how do Canadians overall feel about this work-life balance that we have been able to, I guess, you know, attain at this point? Well, the good news is that, you know, 69% of Canadian workers actually feel like they're in a position where it's, it's between good to excellent in terms of their work-life balance. And, and more importantly, 35% of individuals actually felt like it's, it's been getting better compared to three years ago. So, you know, they're still able to achieve. And maybe that is going back to, you know, technology and having the ability and, 
And what we've also seen is that organizations are, are seeing the correlation between helping individuals achieve their work-life balance or having uh, that feeling that they are there, uh, which, again, there is a direct correlation between uh, people that are happy and their productivity. So it's, um, it, it seems like you know, things are, are working well. Not only that, I think it's, it's important for a lot of employers to, to help um, their employees achieve that, that feeling because um, that is a great way to, to attract and retain. I think years ago, um, it was a big challenge where if somebody came to an interview and they said, hey, I'm, I'm looking for work-life balance, some employers or some managers would see it as a, as a red flag. Uh, where now I think people are saying, hey, you know what, I want somebody that can that can maybe check out or being able to uh, take that time off that's required to kind of recharge that uh, that battery. So it's uh, it is getting better and, and the, the stats uh, show it. So context matters in this case. And and I only have anecdotal evidence. I don't have anything empirical here. But when I moved from the east, um, I noticed rather quickly that there was a very different intensity in Vancouver compared to, say, Ottawa or Toronto. Uh, do you think that our definitions of work-life balance are quite different across the country, Mike? You know, it's, it's hard to, to tell, but I, I think overall, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree. I, you know, we, we do have uh, operations and businesses that are, are done in, in the East and um, in different parts and different markets and, and expectations are, are quite different in terms of even, even follow-up sometimes. So I, I think that uh, there is some, uh, some degree to it. I think it also depends on, on industries. I think some industries uh, vary in terms of uh, their intensity uh, and what is required within, uh, within the position or within the business uh, practice. So uh, I think there's something to it, uh, Kirk, for sure. Well, is there something to maybe generational differences, though? Because I wonder if older employers are, are looking at attracting younger workers and there's just different expectations. You know, you talk to a lot of young people and maybe it's not salary that's their number one priority. It's having more vacation time or having more of that flex time. I, I think, I, I, you know, the generational, um, I, I don't know if that is purely the case. I think there it's more of what actually motivates individuals within each generation. Um, I think there is a lot of uh, millennials that uh, are looking for that, but there are some millennials that are very driven that are, are work, 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 and are looking to climb up that, that ladder, right? Uh, so it, it, it truly goes back to as an employer and as employees as um, getting away from that pointing that finger uh, when it comes to it. You got to just have a conversation with your, with your teams and your, your leadership and management and, and lay out the foundation that, you know, the same way that you have goals when it comes to um, your, your corporate mandate and vision and mission, you want to do the same thing from your personal life. Hey, what do you want to accomplish on your, on your spare time? What do you want to do? Okay. So this is, you lay that out and, and as a manager and employee, you work together to, to achieve those things. Certainly. The employer's responsibility in all of this too must be to um, there's, there's dual loyalties. Obviously, there's a loyalty to the organization you're in. You want to achieve all of your objectives and things like that. But one of your other goals has to be that you you want to make sure that you're that these very productive employees do not burn out. Don't don't yeah. burn out by by all of that. So, what responsibility do you think lays with the with the manager in order to uh, essentially ensure that that you know, that there's some self-care happening here. 
Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's critical as as a leader. You have to recognize the link between uh, you know employees, their well-being, and their productivity, and you have to be able to offer options and resources to to have that balance uh, for their personal life. So uh, there's a lot of uh, obligations when it comes to your personal life and and professional life, but uh, you gotta you gotta help individuals and give them tools to be able to reduce some of that stress um, to to increase that uh, positive uh, impact and engagement. Uh, because uh, if if they're happy, uh, they will do everything they can to uh, to be successful. Uh, so anything that will give them the edge in their day to day operation uh, in, their, in their even their own personal life will uh, certainly pay dividends uh, in their uh, professional uh, work. Well, Mike, always a pleasure. And what listeners don't know is that you're actually calling in on your own free time because you love doing the show so much. So you've been able to find you're on holidays. That, exactly. Uh, yeah. Out in the Caribbean. And, you know, he's uh, calling from a beach right now. But uh, you, you, you love your work so much that, that this is a perfect work. We'll ring balance. you up Saturday, too. Okay? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it'll be great. <laughs> Anytime. I don't know if my wife and kids will like it, but uh, I'll give it a shot. Excellent. Hey, Mike, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. All right, gentlemen. Thank you. That's Mike Sheckman. He is the regional manager with Robert Half Canada here in Vancouver. Okay, so I think everybody's been there. You know that never-ending or perhaps somewhat unproductive meeting. Are you accusing me of never, holding these meetings? Never. Yeah, okay. But uh, look, the, these can be kind of annoying, but more than that, they can actually cost businesses. And according oh, yeah. to our next guest, ineffective meetings cost us billions of dollars annually. Elise Keith, she is the author of Where the Action Is, The Meetings That Make or Break Your Organization. She's calling in from Portland, Oregon. She is the co-founder of Lucid Meetings. Elise, thanks for joining us on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. I love the name of the of the firm, Lucid Meetings. What, what makes a meeting lucid, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> uh, lucid Meeting is one that you knew why the heck you were there in the first place, and you got something that you could understand out of it. I appreciate that because I, I think, you know, not any meeting I've ever been to or Kirk's leading the way, but I've been to those meetings before. Don't be, don't be too polite. It's okay. I, I hold bad meetings quite a bit. It's okay. But it, you're kind of wondering, like, what are we doing here? Is there a game plan? And, and what do we come away with it? I think that's the other important thing here. So why should we be getting together and having meetings with colleagues? Should there be a plan of action ahead of time, Elise? Always. Always there should be a plan of action. Um and you know what is exciting? So when we started our company, we thought that it was as simple as, as doing just exactly that, right? Teaching everybody to have agendas and come out with notes at the end. But um, it turns out it's actually um, much more complex and much more exciting and powerful to figure out how to meet well with your team. Yeah, I think, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, so when you go out and you try and find not just examples of meetings that go poorly, because those examples are, are pretty easy to find. Um, but when you go out and you say, okay, let me see where it's working well, all of a sudden you start tapping into practices of the elite organizations. Um, and they're all meeting practices and they're uh, incredibly powerful ways to drive significant results. We know that a really great meeting has exactly that buzz effect. People leave just propelled. 
and all of that. Mm-hmm. And and that can, I think, achieve, well, it can achieve a lot of things. It can make a business almost instantly more successful. What does a bad meeting do, do you think, to an organization? How does it wreck it? Oh, the, the, um, the research on this is actually really, really clear. Um, teams and organizations that either fail to meet often enough, that can be a problem, right? If you don't meet with your people, uh, people feel abandoned. Mm-hmm. And you have incredible challenges with engagement and retention. So, you know, especially in today's business climate where we have an incredibly hot uh, labor market, you know, not meeting effectively with folks is a great way to lose those people. So that's a, that's a huge problem. Um, the other massive uh, challenge for an organization that doesn't know how to meet well is that they don't know how to make decisions effectively. Uh, so, the, it's, so it's a meeting about a meeting about a meeting kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. Or they don't get the right information out to the people who need to make the decision. Or they don't understand that there are, in fact, ways to approach decisions that are um, more than intuitive that lead to higher quality results over time. Like you can actually um, study decision quality, and they've found that teams that use a uh, process, they have learned how to use their meetings to make effective decisions. You know, there's a 95% correlation in business performance and decision effectiveness. Well, so that's um, that's an enormous, an enormous proportion of your um, ROI. You, you mentioned just a second ago a, a process. You know, companies will figure out their own process. Are there rules there? Or are there just suggestions that will help people work out what is going to be the most effective way for their organization to, you know, come together with a good meeting? Oh yeah, there are, and there um, there are, and there are rules that apply not only at. Um, sort of the top level of the organization, so at the leadership team level, but for each of the different functional groups as well. So when you want to use your meetings really, really effectively, the key is to get specific. And that specificity has to do with like, what kind of an organization are we? And what are we trying to accomplish in the world? And now I know that as interviewers, you know this, right? The way that you run a decent interview is kind of a special skill. It has a, a pattern to it that you prepare for and that you then execute. So you know this intuitively. Yeah, we, we, have, a, we have a roadmap of some sort, of some sort that, that you have to <laughs> right. be able to do. Yeah. yeah, and you know absolutely the kind of value you're going to expect to get out of these kinds of conversations. It's just not a question about whether this will be a waste of your time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The same is true in your sales organization. Right. The, the sales people in your organization, if they know how to meet well with clients, the results they're trying to achieve are things like rapport, trust, money, <laughs> you know, really yeah. quite clear. But in that, but, but, but you actually make that point. It's in that order. And that's the other thing, too, mm-hmm. is that sometimes meetings begin where, where someone kind of jolts everybody with, with what has to happen. And hasn't really worked up properly to it, hasn't laid the, the groundwork. And it's the same thing with an interview. You have to engender some trust in that room uh, before you get people to open up for a conversation. Uh, is it, it, it can't be any different with a meeting. It's not. It's not. And actually, one of the things that's um, quite fun to see is when you get to some of these really high-powered teams, and we're talking about the military or investment banking, like places where lives and fortunes are on the line. 
they will start meeting some of them with a meditation and an icebreaker. And they'll end their meetings with rituals like the, like the appreciations ritual, which is basically a way of, you know, everybody taking a moment to say thank you to somebody else for something they have done for them in the past week. Well, that kind of leads me to my next question, because whenever I'm in a meeting, I, I try not to be a wallflower. I, I, I want to contribute. How do you help, you know, get some of those people out of their shells if they're, they're not always as comfortable, you know, expressing their own opinions during a meeting? That is, um, that's always an interesting challenge, isn't it? And it has to do with how you structure the conversation. So one of my favorite techniques that I like to use, especially in a team that doesn't have a history of participation, right? So in a, in, in a really uh, effective team that's got their process down and they're clicking along, there's no question about whether you're going to contribute because it's built into how the whole thing runs. You know, everybody's there for a reason and everybody has something they're responsible for bringing to the group. And therefore they do, you know, that it's just built in. But in teams where that isn't the case yet, um, there are some wonderful techniques that involve asking a question and then giving the group a moment in silence to work through their answers in their head. Mm -hmm. And then they share that answer with, say, one other person. Ah, so you break them, you break them into groups. Uh-huh, exactly. And then mm-hmm. the and then that pair will then offer an idea that the two of them came up with. So you end up um everybody is speaking to at least one other person. Yeah. Yeah. It's and, interesting. It's yeah, no different it now that out. Yeah, it's no different actually to uh, I teach a bit um at part time. And now the new style of teaching if you want to call it that is to um pose the question and have people break into groups of 3. And talk mm-hmm. about it, and then fifteen minutes later, you come back and you're you're ready for the the grand discussion. Everybody's prepared right. on that point. Uh, no different than that. Um, so I want to ask a couple of uh, uh, specific questions here about meetings and, and areas I think that are very common right now. Um, the first one has to do with starting on time and how essential that is, so that people are not drifting in five, ten, fifteen minutes late after you really kind of laid out what it is that you're trying to achieve and you have to do it all over again or a person has to catch up or not. Someone told me that, that uh, one of the ways to, to uh, address that is to not start the meeting at, say, 9 o'clock, but to say the meeting will start at 9.07. And it, it just it makes people think differently about the start time and that they treat it then like a train that you cannot miss. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there are a bunch of psychological tricks like that that you can play with timing for sure. Um, and that's, that's not a bad idea. Um, it doesn't work in perpetuity, yeah. right? If yeah. your meeting's at 9.07 every week, then pretty much everybody just does the mental math and it, and it switches. Yeah. Um, there are some other things you can do with time, because you're right, starting on time and ending on time are key to um, people's perception of whether the meeting was a good one, yeah. right? Um, and, and really, that, that actually is the, the key. It's setting and meeting the expectations. So this is what we're going to do. This is actually what we did. Hooray, everybody loves it. doesn't matter how long it is or how short it is. That's how you make people feel like they were in a quality call. Um, but on the time front, you know, some more powerful practices are to establish criteria um, as a team or working team agreements where everybody comes together and they sign off that, yes, they're going to be there on time. And that's, 
how the things will work. You know, it's instead of assuming that that's a value, you make it an explicit part of your company and your team's agreement with each other. Mm-hmm. So that that's in, um, an incredibly powerful and effective way to do it. Um, the other two things that you can do is you just start. You don't wait. Uh, <laughs> you take notes as you go. So if people walk in late, they catch up by reading the notes. Um, and then the third one, which is my favorite, and it's also, you know, very popular with all of the Valley folks, which is time blocking. Mm. So you uh, work to schedule your meetings in such a way that let's say all your internal meetings are on a Tuesday or, you know, all of them happen at the same time of the day across the board so that your meetings are not forcing people to run from one to another at odd hours all day, which is why they end up being late in the first place. So, so, uh, uh, shaming people who arrive late isn't really a strategy. Is that what you're saying? But you it's know, kind of, it's, well. it's not my favorite. It's not my favorite <laughs> way to get people comfortable to engage later. There are some people who advocate it. Um, uh, I know one ex, one guy who says, uh, lock the door. Ah, uh, I like uh, that idea. Lock the door. Yeah. I think, have we tried that before? <laughs> we have tried, we have tried that. Once. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> it seems like that'd be a violation of fire safety laws. You think? Or like we're not locking, yeah. no, we're locking people out, not <laughs> locking people in. <laughs> Uh, but uh, uh, at least I'm also wondering, though, I mean, look, we've got technology coming about with, you know, Skype calls, conference calls. Why is it important, though, that we are still meeting face to face with individuals? Um, you know, the face to face meetings tend to get richer connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's a, it's it's pretty easy if you don't actually wish to engage to um tend to engage in a Skype call or a Zoom call. Right. It's much more difficult to do that when you're in person. You know, that said, the investment cost of getting everybody together in person all the time is not very effective for larger groups or, or distributed or remote groups, right? So, you know, there's a balance to be had there between learning your skills for both medium, for sure. Yeah. Um, give us your tips on this, because uh, this is, I think, the most common problem that I see now in meetings. People who bring their smartphones in and decide that um, whenever someone's talking, that it's still okay to be texting back and forth or looking at email or, frankly, the Twitter stream that you've got. What, what do you do about the smartphone? Uh, two things. One, uh, again, make an explicit agreement. Right. I mean, anytime you have a behavior that you all collectively agree is destructive, call it out and make an explicit decision as a team not to do that anymore. So many teams have a rule that is um, no technology except in service of the meeting. Mm -hmm. Right. So the only people who can have a laptop are the people taking notes and they will put their phones in a basket or do a, a number of other things. I think that kind of that you know, explicit rule like that sort of breaks down a little bit when you're remote because you can't control that. But but it's worth having as a discussion because then you can bring it up when it comes up in practice. But more effectively and more importantly, if somebody is bored and not engaged to the point where they have time to check their phone, then what's going on in that meeting is either irrelevant to them or it hasn't been made clear to them why it's relevant to them. And you've just wasted your investment in their salary. Right. So, yeah, so the enough. more important thing is to like have a meeting that's worth engaging in. 
Yeah. Got so, it. At least very illuminating stuff. I think Kirk and I, were going to take all your advice here and see if we can apply it. Oh, to, I, uh, I, I need to ask though, at least. <laughs> yeah. I, I, no, I need, I need to ask, can you remember the one meeting that was, that just hit the home run for you, at least? Can you remember it, home- and, and what, ha- and what happened, how it, how it changed something for you? The one that like like totally hit the light bulb off in my head. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't a fabulous meeting, but I completely remember it. Um, I got pulled into uh, an international standards committee at the national level, and I was a junior software developer, youngest person in the room, one of like maybe five women in a room of thirty people, and I was ended up sitting across the table from a guy representing the U.S. Department of Defense, a representative from Microsoft, um, you know, all of these huge companies. And the U.S. Department of Defense guy looked like Wolf Blitzer. Like he had this huge gray beard and he scowled and he was just super scary. Mm -hmm. And we're in this meeting and we're talking about um, trade infringement, right? Like massive international issues with water safety and you know, um, copyright violations and all of this stuff. And the Wolf Blitzer guy is talking about nuclear submarines and <laughs> what do we need to do to keep them safe. So it was all of this very important, very scary stuff. And I watched the, these very important, very scary people um, misbehave. Uh-huh. And there was a guy from the telecom industry who whined like a little girl when he didn't get his way. And there was another guy on the phone who um, fell asleep during a too long presentation and snored loudly without putting himself on mute. (laughs) And then at the break, the Wolf Blitzer guy and I shared a cookie because we were both like completely falling asleep. And in that meeting, I was like, oh my gosh, in this meeting, things that impact millions of people and trillions of dollars are being decided. So whether or not we're running our meetings well, those are the moments where the future gets made. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for making me feel safer today. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then it all ended up okay, right? Because they had a really strong process. Okay. It wasn't, it wasn't enthralling. It wasn't exciting to be there, but the process was very, very clear and they were able to get it done. And I thought, you know what? These people are dealing with huge issues and they're super boring um, in terms of the way they're talking about it and their competitors, but they're able to come to an important and correct decision. How come my team back in the office that's supposed to be all on the same side can't do that? Oh, right. Well, right? it's very good stuff to ponder. Yeah. And uh, at least I, I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. That is Elise Keith. She's a co-founder of Lucid Meetings, and she's also the author of Where the Action Is, The Meetings That Make or Break Your Organization. That's it for our show today. Thank you for listening to BIV Today. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at BIV.com, where you can find more business news, of course. We'll be back tomorrow.